Thank you. Good morning, folks. Great to see you this morning. If you're new here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to have you with us. Before we kick in what, what we're going to be doing, I want to just bring a, a point that I think it's good for us all to hear, for us to be praying. Um, last week, a lady in our church who's been part of our church family for a, for a number of years now, unfortunately had a brain hemorrhage. That's correct. And as a result of that brain hemorrhage is now on life support machine. That's for Luke. Now, Faluki came up from London to care for a mum who lives just off Smith Down Road, who's got dementia, uh, I think it's Alzheimer's, and she's, she's unwell as well. So Faluki is, is only in her mid-50s. So what we want to be doing is to pray, number one, that God would heal her. But two, that God, in the midst of his sovereignty, being in complete control of all things, would, by his spirit, be reminding Faluki, even as she is in, on life support, that she is saved and that she is sure, assured of a living hope that is far greater than anything we experience now. Amen? Amen. I also want to bring, there's another lady in our church called Pam Anderson, who we love dearly. And Pam had a number of tests this week. Uh, and the news at this point is good, but there are some issues for her as well. So we need to be praying for uh, Pam. Pam is an elderly lady in our church that we love, love dearly. So before we do anything, I'm going to pray for those two people. And then we're going to get into... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Let's pray. Father, we ask and we pray that you will be with our sister, Feluke. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would heal her. And I ask that with confidence and I ask that with boldness that you would heal our sister. You would cause her to wake. I pray that there will be no damage. But Father, you are in complete control of all things, so we submit to you and we ask, Father, that even in the difficulty that she finds herself in, that she would be assured by your spirit in her mind and in her heart that she is saved. Comfort her. We pray for Faye, her mum, with all her difficulties and the confusion she finds herself in. Pray that you be with her. I thank you for the gospel community that has been loving and caring for Faluki, not only in this moment, but for months and years before, uh, before this and we ask Lord for your glory in the midst of this we also pray for Pam we thank you so much for Pam thank you for the news from the tests that she's been having this week have, have been have been good and positive but there are all that there are issues and we ask that we the, the, the doctors will be able to get to the to the root of that we pray that you bring healing there but again reassure Pam that we love her and that you love her and that she is saved and secure father as we open up your word help us Help us to recognize that we sit under your authority before anything else. Help us that we have been saved by grace, therefore we are to be gracious one to another. I pray for grace on me today as I unpack this. And we ask, Lord, that you will be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And as you're doing that, let me bring you up to speed. We've been looking at this letter, a letter by the Apostle Peter, who was writing to a group of Christians, churches in an area called Asia Minor, which we now know to be modern-day Turkey. And these people are trying to make sense of what it looks like to live for Jesus as God's people in a community and in a culture that is hostile to the things of Jesus. 
the hostile. And what we've seen is that Peter's encouraged them and reminded them of who they are. They've been chosen by God to be his precious possession, that they have this living hope that, that there is something far greater than what they are experiencing that is kept in heaven for them. And I don't know about you, that is encouraging for me in the midst of the rough and ready of every day. Jesus has secured a living inheritance, a world, a new creation where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no difficulty. They're here secured for you and for me. Amen? Amen. But in the midst of the reality that we find ourselves, Peter reminds God's people that yes, the very person that you are building your lives upon, yes, the very person by which the church is built upon the Lord Jesus is being rejected by the culture. But let me remind you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are my precious possession so that you may show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into, into his marvelous light. Once you were not God's people, but now you are. Once you were not a people who knew the mercy of God, but now you know the mercy of God. And it is God's presence amongst his people, by his spirit, that the world looks in and the world sees. We are called to be distinctive. We are called to be different. See, it's interesting that what we've seen so far is this call for us to really understand the relationships that we have one with another because of who we are. And now I think we shift to start to think about what our direct relationships, both with and within the unbelieving world that we find ourselves look like. So let's have a look at verse 11 of chapter 2 and read through to verse 7 of chapter 3. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, to, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of your lives, when they see your respect, respectful and pure conduct. Do not let the adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm going to pray again. Father, I pray that the grace of God would penetrate every heart. And we are submissive to you. We pray that for your glory's sake. Amen. Folks, being part of the chosen people of God, being part of the church of Jesus Christ that is built upon him, having a living hope, knowing that there is more to what we are experiencing now is something that is wonderful. Amen? Majestic. It is hopeful in the midst of a hopeless world. But I also want to say this, that it is something that is earthy. And when I mean earthy, what I mean is that the church is made up of real people who live real lives in real time, in real places, and amongst the real cultures in a world that is broken, in a world that is sinful, in a world that is hostile to the things of Jesus Christ. And each of our experiences of living as God's people in a broken world, a sinful world, in a hostile world, will be manifested differently. We will experience them differently. See, the earthiness of living in this reality as God's people, what it does, if we're honest, is exposes the truth of what is happening in our hearts in any given situation. In any given situation, in any moment, in the rough and ready of the everyday so what I mean by that is we're not living like, oh, we are part of the people of God. We are, that is majestic, that is wonderful, that is hopeful. Up here in some ether, no, that is something that we know to be true in the reality of the rough and ready of the day. And the rough and ready and the brokenness of the day exposes what is really going on in our hearts in that moment. See, Peter, in sharing the reality of who they are as God's people, the church and who we are as God's people, is fully aware that the pressure of coming from the culture all around to embrace its perspective on life, to embrace its responses to things, to understand roles and responsibilities in the midst of relationships is, for the people of God, heavy. So that's why in verse 11, Peter urges them, when the rubber hits the road in the reality of life, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I urge you, beloved, in the midst of the reality that you find yourself in, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And in contrast, verse 12, to keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles, amongst those who do not believe, honorable. See, when confronted with hostility of the culture, remember this, remember this, folks, please. You are, as Peter says to the churches here, sojourners and exiles. You are just passing through. You are aliens, foreigners. 
Your understanding of what it is to live the culture of God's people is alien to the culture that you are living in. Remember that this is not your home. We are traveling through to a new home. And whatever may be impressed upon us, we are not to respond out of the passions of our brokenness and the passions of our flesh. We are to respond in light of who we are and where we are going. See, it's interesting. When he says passions of the flesh, what he means there is sinful desires. And often when we read passions of the flesh in the Bible, where we go straight away is sinful, sinful things. And there are parts in the Bible where it talks about, sorry, sexual sins, sexual things, the passions of the flesh. But I think here what Peter is talking about is not that. It's things like wrong self-preservation. It's the desire for revenge. It's envy. It's slander. It's the temptation to gossip or the desire for comfort that comes from disobeying God. See, Peter is saying abstain from those things and alternatively conduct yourselves in an honorable way amongst unbelievers and towards unbelievers, verse 12. Because this is how raises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When the pressure is on and God's people conduct themselves in an honorable way, even if people are to speak evil of them, they will not be able to deny their good deeds and they will praise God on the day of his visitation. Peter is saying in the midst of the reality, we are to be a people who are marked by this living hope. A people who are marked by the grace. A people who are marked by that in that we display grace and we display mercy in the midst of the reality of the pressure of the culture that we find ourselves in. And this conduct, this good conduct, verse 12, is intended for, to be, for it to be missional. So actually, as we live in a good way, as we live in a way that is different and distinctive to how other people may respond in the midst of that pressure, what that does is cause questions. It causes questions. People ask, why are they, why are they acting in this way? See, folks, what we need to remember, and especially when we get into the three areas that Peter unpacks for us, how we live has missional significance. It just does. See, it's interesting. I think we went through for many, many years in the church, the, uh, you know, I'd rather see somebody live it out than hear it. Go and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I actually think we're on the other end now. People are happy for someone like me to stand up and share the gospel, but we're very nervous about living that out in the midst of the reality that we find ourselves in. See, folks, if the way we live has missional significance, the way we live either presents the gospel to people or it doesn't. And either way is significant. Bearing in mind that you have that living hope and the people that we do life amongst are headed for hell. That's missional significance. So here, Peter highlights and makes comments regarding three areas of life where this pressure is often felt. The society. Living as a citizen in this society. 
the workplace, and in marriage. Now, folks, I need to say this to you. The, there are moments in the pastor's life when he's preparing a sermon, when he sits down on a Monday and he thinks, right, I've got to get this sermon ready for Sunday, and he comes to realize that actually what he has in front of him is four sermons, not one. All right? That is one of these weeks. So I've been looking at my watch every 10 minutes. Not that I'm trying to hurry people thinking, oh my word, I've got a lot to go through here. That's why I prayed for grace I'm going to be engaging with. So what I'm going to try and do is fly through the first two and land a little bit longer in the last one. A little bit longer. So the first one is this. Peter talks to us about what it looks like for us to live as citizens of the kingdom, as good citizens in the society. But before I go there, just a point of clarification that will help. In each of these three areas... There is a call to subjection, submission, to obedience. Verse 13, we're called to be subjected to the authorities. Verse 18, we're called to be subject to masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, we're called, wives are called to be subject, to submit to their husbands. It is a call for willing obedience. Now, as you look through the Bible, what you'll see, there are areas that talk about willing obedience, but also areas that talk about people who refuse to be obedient. See, Jesus was obedient to his parents. You read in Romans that the, the people can refuse to submit to, the, um, to, to God's law. That actually, the church is called to submit to Christ, to be subject to Christ. And we, those of us who are younger, are told to submit to those who are older, elders in the church. See, one of the potential issues that I think when, we, when we're seeking to understand this issue of submission, because I know chapter 3, it goes, ooh, what are we talking about here? One of the things that we struggle with is that when we hear the word subjection or submission, I think we go to a point where we assume that it means complete, unadulterated submission and unquestionable obedience. Now, whether or not submission involves unquestionable obedience, that, that cannot be determined by the word submission. It can only be determined by the context that that word is used. Are you with me? Not to the phrase, not to the term, but rather the context. And hopefully we'll understand that more. So the first one, society. Verses 13 to 17. Peter is telling them, for the Lord's sake. And he's saying to us, for the Lord's sake, be subject to every human institution or every institution that has been ordained by people. Now in their case, that would have been the Roman emperor and all the governing bodies. In our case, it will be the government and the governing bodies like councils, organizations that will come from that, like the police force or the tax office. And different places. We are called to be subjected, to be submissive, to obey these things. Now, the Lord Jesus, even in his ministry, was asked a similar question. Somebody said to him, should we give tax to the Romans? And Jesus said, give me a coin, give me a coin. And the fellow gave him a coin. He said, whose head is on this coin? And he said, Caesar. He said, okay. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God's. See, Romans 13 also tells us this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's heavy, isn't it? For rulers are not a terror to, do, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
then do what is good and you will receive his approval. And here, Peter is saying the will of God is that these governing bodies are in place to deal with evil and to praise what is good. And it is the will of God for those of us who are Christians to live as good citizens honoring the governing bodies. And folks, we submit to the governing authorities because of and out of our relationship with God. Because God has ordained these governing authorities. It is God that has put this in place. So actually, if God says we are to be subjected to the governing authorities, we do that out of our obedience and our relationship with God. And we conduct ourselves as good citizens. That is his will for us. And whatever the issue that arises because of the governing bodies and the ruling entities, we are to do good in the public place, whatever the issue. So folks, we may find ourselves in situations where we do not agree with the governing bodies, but our role is to do good in the midst of that in the public place. And it is this that will silence ignorant people. It will this that will cause questions. Why are they living for these things? How is it in the midst of that oppression can they live like this? See, we are able to live as good citizens under any regime because we are free people. Do you see that? We are free in Christ. Now, for us, that is less tangible because actually, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, we live in a free country. We do. The fact that we can sit here shows that we are free. We live in a society where freedom, whatever that means, is encouraged. We live in a free society, but there are many around the world who are Christians and brothers and sisters where this is not their reality. They are oppressed. They are not allowed to meet as God's people. But these people are still free in Christ. Free to do good as citizens, but they are also free to love, free to pray for their oppressors, free to love their enemies, free to do good in the midst of the cultural and political landscape that they live in. And folks, can I say this from my own experience? They do. We are free, free people. Folks, we are to submit from our freedom in Christ that comes from who we are as his people in the context of the living hope that we have not from fear or a subservient spirit, but from being free people in Christ. But verse 16 is really clear. We can't allow this freedom to justify any sin. And that means we can't justify behaving in certain ways just because we are not happy with what the government does which I think is the biggest challenge for us. See, the biggest challenge for us is the temptation to dishonor other human beings who sit in those offices. I think the biggest challenge for us as Christians is to be abusive towards those people and be fine about that because we don't agree with this. I actually think the temptation for us in some way is actually we can justify anarchy if we are not happy. And you may be sitting there saying, okay, Steve, but what if we are called to do something that is contrary to what God says? Look at verse 17. What does he say, Peter? He says this, honor everybody, love the brotherhood, which means love each other, but fear God. Fear God. 
See, the will of God is for the governing bodies to do the will of God. And if we are commanded, folks, and if we are instructed to live in ways that fall outside the will of God, this does not give us license to sin, but we must obey God. We must obey Him. And what's interesting is this, that gives us a context regarding submission that is driven by the context, not by the term. You with me? If we are called to do something that is contrary to the will of God, we don't do it. And we, we don't sin, but we fear God. Examples of this in the, New, in the Old Testament are in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh wants to kill all the newborn baby boys, so he gets the Hebrew wives. And what does he say to the Hebrew wives? Kill them. That's an authority telling the Hebrew midwives, sorry, to kill all the babies. What do they do? They don't kill. In fact, they lie to Pharaoh and say, look, these Hebrew Israelite women, they're feisty. They give birth like it's a bullet out of a gun. It's like, whoo, they're just too quick. We're not there. Civil disobedience. Why? Because there is a command to disobey the law of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They don't. Daniel is told he can't pray to his God. He does. Where does he do it? Right in his front window so everybody can see. Folks, we are called as citizens, as God's people, in the midst of whatever pressure, to honor the authorities, to do good. And how do we do that? As free people, let us be marked for what we stand for, not what we stand against. Next one, in the workplace. Verses 18 to 25. Peter here is addressing what would, would, would have been known as domestic slaves, okay? Nowhere in the New Testament does it justify slavery. Nowhere. But that was the reality that God's people were living in in that part of the world. That was the reality. And actually, a domestic slave was often somebody who would step into slavery to pay off debt or to make money. And often, these people, these servants, would be doctors or accountants or hold skilled jobs and often would be more skilled than their masters. So it's actually quite easy for us to look at this and go, actually, it's similar to us in the fact that we go to work and we serve. There are people that are over us, line managers, bosses. And we are called, as Peter calls them, to be submissive. So folks, we are, as Christian people, are called to be obedient to our bosses, our line managers, our masters. We are called to be obedient to those who are gentle, which means kind, but also those who are unjust, which means harsh and unreasonable, verse 18. Now, many of us have had good bosses, and I'm sure many of us have had harsh, unreasonable bosses, and Peter is saying to the people of God, honor both of them. Honor them even if they mistreat you. And you are able, as Christian people, you are able to do this by being mindful of God and looking to the example of Jesus in how he was mistreated, verses 21 to 25. Do you see that? Look how Jesus was treated. And you are able to stand for Christ in the midst of the pressure of unjust leadership over you because Christ did as well. Folks, as Christians, we will, and I think we increasingly will, face trials in the workplace. And we will face issues with those who have authority over us, but... 
We cannot allow the passions of the flesh to rise up and cause us to sin, but rather be mindful of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we should submit to him, serving like him and displaying good deeds, even when it is difficult. Now, it's interesting. I think in verse 20, Peter is dealing with one of the temptations that we face in work. All right? Because if you're being beaten by your boss, I'd raise a hand and tell somebody about that, okay? If you're being physically beaten, that's not right, okay? Just to let you know, okay? And just to clarify, I don't beat any of my staff if they don't deserve it. No, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Now, in verse 20, Peter, I think, is dealing with this. Having a harsh, unreasonable boss does not, folks, give us license to be lazy. It doesn't give us license to be sinful. It doesn't give us license to gossip. And frankly, it doesn't give us license to do a bad job. And sometimes we will use the fact that our bosses are difficult to justify our sinfulness and our laziness and our bad job. I'm not talking about making mistakes. I'm talking about deliberately not doing. So what credit is there if you are punished for responding sinfully to that. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. What credit is there? But what does he say? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's what he says. See, you could work hard. You could do everything right. And you could still suffer under the hands of an unreasonable, harsh boss. He says, don't allow the passions of the flesh to grow up inside you to do something different, actually act in a, in a way that is honorable in the midst of that harsh behavior. Yeah, Steve, but what if I'm being abused? What if I'm really being treated ter terribly? Can I say this? If, it is that, if that is you, use the means that are in place because there will be in your workplace. Use the means that are in place to deal with such behavior. Use it. Walk through grievances, but... Do it in a way that is Christ-like. Don't gossip. Don't dishonor. And pray that you can move towards that person or persons in love and forgiveness. That's what it looks like to live as a good servant under a master. And folks, again, if you are instructed to do something that is outside of God's will, like fix the accounts or change results or break the law or bully others, you fear God, you obey him, and you don't do that. Are you with me? See the context of submission, because ultimately we submit to God. Folks, the war, the war in our souls between godliness and the passions of the flesh has the potential to be an explosion point in the workplace. So remember who you are. Remember who you are. And finally, marriage. Like with our relationships with society, like with our relationships in the workplace, our responses and the call from God to submit flows from who we are as his people. In society, it flows from being free people and servants of Christ, verse 16. In the workplace, we are to be mindful of God, verse 19, and also look to the example of Jesus, verse 21 and 25. And it's the same here in the context of marriage. But there's an added issue to this. 
that marriage, marriage is a picture of the gospel to the world. See, if you want to understand marriage, look to the gospel. Look to the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. Look at the relationship that the church has with Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand the gospel, we should be able to look at marriages, Christian marriages, to see how the husband responds to the wife and how the wife responds to the husband. And that gives us a clear picture of the gospel. So marriage is not only a place where authority um, authority can be abused because it can. Marriage is not only a place where oppression can be felt because it is. Marriage is also the place by which the praises and the glory of God should be clearly seen between husband and wife. That's why Peter deals with it here. See, he deals with society because those in some sort of authority and power can oppress those who are under them. He deals with the workplace because those who are in some sort of authority and power can oppress those who are under them. And he brings in marriage because there are responsibilities and roles that are given to a husband where he should care and love his wife, actually in his sinfulness, abuses that position and oppresses his wife. See, sadly, this happens often. And in this particular passage, verses 1 to 6, Peter is talking to women specifically who are married to unbelieving men. But what is said here is also true for any wife. See, ladies, those of you who are married and those of you who aren't, whether your husband is a believer or not, how you respond to him should flow from who you are in God. Completely. So I actually think in this passage you see the roots of what it is to be a godly woman that help us, help those of you who are wives to live as godly wives and God willing, those of you who will become wives. So let me show you a few. A godly woman hopes in God. Verse 5. Verse 5 there. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God. A godly woman does not put her hope in her husband. Or getting a husband, neither does she put her hope in appearance, her intelligence, her career, or even her children. Her hope is in God. Proverbs 31, 25 gives this wonderful picture of a godly woman says that strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. Why? Because her hope is in the living hope that she finds in Christ Jesus that enables her to live in a situation that is incredibly difficult. And in the midst of difficulty and trouble, her focus and attention is on the sovereign power of God. That's what it means to be a godly woman. They hope in God. Number two, a godly woman is fearless. Is fearless. See, this hope in God produces fearlessness. Again, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That is frightening. See, Peter gives the example of Sarah who was married to Abraham, and you can read about their relationship in Genesis 18. But godly women who have their hope in God see it flow out into fearlessness. See, godly women who have their hope in God fight anxiety that rises in their hearts and they wage war on fear with the promise of God. See, godly women entrust their souls 
to a faithful father. They entrust their souls to the one who promises hope in him. And because of that, they triumph over fear. They do what is right. And they are able to be obedient to God. See, godly women hope in God. They are fearless. And they are intentional about the adornment of the hidden person. See, it's again, verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God adorn themselves. And it refers to verse 3 and five, 4. Folks, nowhere here is Peter saying that women can't do their hair and can't wear jewelry. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is if that is where your identity is, if that where your personhood is, if that is how you feel you have to present, want to be loved by God and loved by your husband and loved by others, look, you need to move from that. Because the women who hoped in God and are fearless actually are intentional in the adornment of the hidden person. So can I encourage you? And can I also present that those women who are godly don't focus their main attention and efforts on how they look on the outside. They focus their main attention and efforts on how they look on the, in, on the inside. Because true beauty is find, found on the inside. And you need to be more concerned with your inner beauty. Now I know some of you are being oppressed by your husbands to think differently. I'll deal with them in a minute. But godly women, hoping God, are fearless in the circumstances. And the hope, verse 4, when they put their hope in God and not their husband and not in their looks. And when she overcomes fear with the promise of God, this will affect their heart. It will give her inner tranquility. It will give her perishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious to God, which is Christ-like. Christ-like. Please don't hear words like precious, beauty, gentle, and think, no. Precious, beautiful, meekness, gentle is just like Christ. He had no visual form that we would look at him, but he was beautiful. He was meek. See, it's interesting. This flowed from Sarah, verse 6. Now, when it talks about Sarah referring to Abraham as her Lord, means master. What's interesting here is you can read that and go, that's horrendous. Why did that happen? See, the context is taken from Genesis 18, verse 12, where Abraham, as an old man, is being told by messengers from God that Sarah was going to have a baby. And Sarah's in the tent listening. (laughs) She's listening. No one knows, apart from the messengers from God. Abraham didn't have a clue. She is, and she goes, how's that going to happen? And what's interesting, she doesn't say, she doesn't say, how how am I going to have a baby? She's like, how is Abraham going to be able to do anything in order for us to be a, have a baby? He's that old. That's what she says. So she's working through the reality of this, what's being told of us. But under her breath, she refers to him as Lord. See, often the things that we say under her breath are the things that we really mean. So under her breath, she still finds beauty to respond in a difficult situation in the way that she has been called to respond towards her husband even if she is struggling to believe she calls him Lord under her breath see godly women put their hope in God they are fearless 
and they are intentional at the, uh, to adorn the hidden person which will flow out even under the breath, even in private. Now it's from that you're able to walk as a godly wife. If that is not on your agenda, it's never going to happen. Now, what's interesting here is this submission is a unique submission compared to the others. It's compared to the others. See, it's a hope in God that leads to fearlessness in the face of whatever the future may bring. That leads to inner beauty of meekness that finally expresses itself in a unique kind of submission to her husband. And folks, it is so sad that as a culture and even in the church, the God-given roles of headship and submission given to husbands and wives are misunderstood, they are abused, and they are passed over. But when you see it being lived out, the mutuality of servanthood from both husband and wife is wonderful. It's a blessing to be part of, and it's a blessing to be around. So I want to deal with what submission is not, because that's where we go. So submission is, number one, not a lack of equality. Verse 7, both the husband and the wife are heirs, co-heirs of the grace of life. You have been made with dignity, value, and worth. You are equal before God. You are saved by him. You are a daughter of God. Submission has nothing to do with a lack of equality. Number two, submission is not always agreeing and having no intellectual thought. We see here in verse 1, Peter is making comment to somebody who was married to an unbeliever. For those of you who are married with unbelievers, you know, I know that you know, that actually your, your ideas of life and flourishing are different to your husband's. And God is not saying, remove those ideas. God is not saying, don't think. No. Folks, it has nothing to do with having no intellectual thought. See, you could have different ideas from your husband. You could have different ideas of the ultimate of reality. But you're still called to submit with the assumption, with the assumption that you will not submit to something that brings about sin. So it's not about intellectual thought. It's not about submitting to every man. It's not about that. Verse 1, be subject to your own husband. It's a unique calling in the context of that relationship. It's not about being passive. See, you are called to step in to give your husband the benefit of your insight, the benefit of your wisdom, the benefit of your perspective, but you're also called to give him the freedom to lead you as he begins. You are, verse one, to win him with your conduct. Number five, it does not mean putting the will of your husband before the will of Jesus. See, submission comes from hope in God and his promises you do not follow your husband into sin. You don't. Do not do that. Don't give up in your submission, though, even if your husband doesn't recognize or is not loving you as Christ loves the church. See, when a husband doesn't realize or appreciate how sweetly his wife keeps looking for ways to make things work, I want you to be assured, ladies, that God does. He sees it. He appreciates you. You are always precious to him. Number six, submission does not mean that you get your personal spiritual strength primarily from your husband. See, the call on your husband is to strengthen you. But we see here in this passage 
that even when a husband's leadership is lacking, the wife's spiritual maturity is not bereft. You can still grow. Number seven, submission does not mean you act out of fear. Submission is something that you do freely and it is never coerced. That's what submission isn't. So what is submission? Submission comes in the divine calling for a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership who is helping her carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition under God to follow her husband's leading. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for the things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the, in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. This is God's way, ladies. And this is good. See, when you submit, you are respectfully submitting to a God-given position and not perfection. In other words, as husbands, we are going to make mistakes. We will not always deserve to be the leader in your eyes, but God will always deserve your obedience to him in this way. And since the command to submit comes from God, your submission is ultimately to him. To him. Now, it's interesting here, Peter then refers to Christian husbands. It's interesting he's spoken to ladies who are married to non-believers, which I think we can all learn from, whether we're married to Christians or not. And then he changes it. Why? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel to the world. There is something important. But also because he recognizes that men have the potential to oppress and abuse women and make hostility, even in the home, something that Christian women have to figure out. That's why he says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Like with society, like with the workplace, like with wives, all submission, indicated by Peter, flows from a primary submission to God. So husbands submit to God's intention for the role of husband. That's what it is. We don't take our idea of what it looks like from, from the culture or what the culture says that it shouldn't look like. We take it from God. We submit to God in the midst of that. Husbands, the role that has been given to you is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He died. It wasn't about him. He died to save people like us in the midst of obeying his heavenly father. How are you to love your wife? Be prepared to die for her. Be prepared to die for her. You are to love and to lead her in ways that point her to Jesus and enable her to flourish as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, but most importantly, as a sister in Christ. Folks, I say this all the time. Husbands, your responsibility is to create an atmosphere and a platform for your wife to flourish. And you do that by being informed 
regarding the knowledge and the will of God. What is the knowledge of God for you as a husband is to love your wife as Christ of the church. What is the will of God for you as a husband is to love your wife as Christ love the church. Create the atmosphere and platform for your wife to flourish. Now it's interesting, there are three things that I very quickly, as I close, want to deal with that he mentions here. One, to clarify a few things, but also to help us. He says this, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? That means that you focus on living in accord with God's will, which also includes understanding the needs of your wife. What is God asking me to do as a husband? What is he asking me to do as a husband? And what are the needs of the specific woman that he has given me to care for? An understanding way. Be understanding regarding what your role is, but also be understanding regarding the woman that he has given you. Every woman in this room, whether she's married or not, wants to be known and wants to be understood. And if you have the privilege of being married to one of the daughters of the king, you should know her. In every way. So you love your wife in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It's interesting, the word vessel is used in different parts of the Bible to refer to man or woman. We are vessels, we are people that the, the Holy Spirit has been given. We've been given a portion of his treasure. We carry that. It's a vessel that has the Spirit of God within that. But there is a sense through the word weaker vessel, there's something about male and females in the way that we've been created that means that there are elements of that where men are not as weak as women. Weaker vessels. Now, folks, nowhere in the New Testament suggests that women are intellectually inferior. Nor is it clear that women are weaker emotionally. In fact, I'll be honest with you, to show vulnerability is stronger than to hide it. We're called to embrace our weakness because in our weakness, he is strong. Nor does Peter suggest that women are weaker morally or spiritually than men. See, a view would suggest that men are actually better Christians than women when we're actually we're co-heirs with one another. See, I think the most obvious meaning here is that women are weaker than men in terms of just sheer strength, sheer physicality. And that fits with the context because physicality makes it easy to intimidate and to oppress. Husbands, you are called to love your wife and create an atmosphere in your home where your wife feels safe. Safe emotionally, safe spiritually, and safe physically. Nowhere in Scripture does it ask you to enforce submission or use physical presence to lead. No, you are to love. See, after Christ, the safest person and after being in Christ, the safest place for your wife should be you and your marriage. You are to work hard at knowing what God is asking of you as a husband 
and you are to work hard at understanding who God has created your wife to be and what he has asked her to do in relation to you. She is a co-heir of the grace of life with you. You are both children of God. You better take care of your sister in Christ because she is a daughter of God the Father. You better do it. Because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. See, husbands who ignore such a command will find that their prayers are hindered, which means this. This is my conviction. It means that God will refuse to answer your prayers. See, God does not bless with his favor those who are in positions of authority and abuse those who are under their care by mistreating them. See, some of you men may be wondering why God is not answering prayers or moving his hand. It's because you are not caring for his daughter. That's why. A father in his right mind would bless any man who brings harm or neglect or fear to his daughter. See, this, all of this is so important for so many reasons. But in the context of mission, it is so important. In the early church, the church exploded. I know it's long, folks. I apologize, but I did warn you. In the early church, the church exploded under real oppression. And many of the people that came to know the Lord Jesus Christ were women. Why? Because they saw in the church how the other women were loved and cared for by their husbands. They saw how the other women within the church, getting the hope and the promise and the fearlessness of God, were flourishing as women in ways that women in the pagan world weren't. Why? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel, how Jesus loves his church. Husbands, please start loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And the women of our church will flourish even more than they are in spite of us. It's so important because people will see and questions will be asked. Folks, ultimately in all this, we are called to be obedient to God and to live as his people in the earthy, woof and ready of the day, according to his word. And in doing so, we will display the hope and assurance we have in Jesus to this lost, hostile culture. Now, I know, I know from the first point, definitely the second point, 100% from the third, that there are things that we're going to have to go and work out together. There are so many implications for some of us, it brings so much pain. For some of us, it brings conviction. And we're going to need to confess and repent of sin, both to God and to each other. So I want us to leave with this in our ears, this in our minds, and this in our hearts. And for this to be the true lens by which we examine and walk this through together. And it's this. He himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed amen if you've sinned and you are sinning confess to God repent of your sin and know 
that you are healed and live to righteousness. We have a loving Savior, Jesus, who not only is our great example on how to be obedient to God the Father in a hostile world, but who took our sin and shame and became sin for us. Amen. Every husband in this room has failed. Every wife in this room has failed. Every employee in this room has dishonored their boss. Every boss in this room has dishonored their employee. Every single one of us are frustrated with the government and have mocked people who sit in those positions. But praise be to God that we have a Savior whose example we can't in and of ourselves follow, but he has saved us and he has healed us. Amen. As you work through these implications, have that as your lens, folks. Have that as your lens. He has taken us who are straying sheep. He's forgiven us. He's saved us. And he leads us and promises to oversee our souls till we take hold of that inheritance of eternal life. This is all verses 22 to 25. And folks, as we eat the bread that reminds us of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we eat this and as we drink, drink the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we have all this conviction and all this pain and all this stuff running around our heads, remind ourselves that we can live to righteousness because he died in our place. And by his wounds, we are healed. So as we eat, as we drink, let us confess, repent, and walk in obedience. And folks, let us also be gracious with one another as we receive the grace of God. Especially those of you who are married. Folks, the relationship that needs grace the most is too often the one which grace is least expressed. So please be honest with each other. Please be real. Men, man up and be men like Jesus. Women, be Christ-like, meek and gentle like your Savior. Let us be gracious and let's see the flourishing pictures that present the gospel to the world. And those of us who are in work tomorrow, let us honor our bosses. And those of us who read the BBC News in the morning, let us pray for our leaders. All through the lens that we have been saved and assured. And all God's people said, amen. And ask the guys that come up, they're going to play. They're going to play and sing. And as we play and sing, as these play this song, you guys, in front of you, there are two little, little jam jars. One has bread in, one has wine in. And during this time, pray. If that's on your own, if that's on your own, if that's with somebody else, pray. Thank God for what he's done. Eat the bread, drink the wine, and then when it's appropriate, enjoy and get involved with the singing. Let's pray. Father, bless our time now. Do healing, we ask by your spirit. Help us to be people of hope in the midst of this hostile world. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Let us eat, drink, and be thankful in your own time. Let's do that.